Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is episode 54, Act 1, Melissa Park, Walk in Truth, recorded May 21st, 2022. Screaming about irrevocability Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches And fight our own way free Cause the rules don't lie but they don't apply to people like you and me Let's start it up now 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 Now they say it's all decided, all divided, all laid out and the pushcart man with a three-part plan Can't understand what you're shouting about But when the past they plow The lives allowed are the only roads you can see Just remember the walls were built to fall For people like you and me Let's start it up now Let's start it up now Let's start it up now Let's start it up now, start it up now. Hey, hey, TA audience. Welcome to Teaching RSU Podcast. This podcast is researched, recorded, and produced on the unceded lands, water, and air stewarded by the Canarsie and Muncie Lenape peoples in what is colonially known as Brooklyn, New York. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of our global community. Hey, hey, y'all. We have surpassed 30,000 listens. Thanks so much for choosing this indie podcast. We absolutely love and appreciate you. Help us get to 40,000 listens by inviting your peeps, colleagues, and friends to join our community and subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. We can also be heard on any podcast player. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and head over to teachingrsg.org to access episodes, guest bios, our video series, merch, and so much more. How do we live in our truth? How do we live our fully authentic selves as much as possible in a world that continually seems to want to oppress humans, especially those outside of the dominant culture? That seems to be the basis of what moves Melissa Park, who is a Brooklyn-based creative and founder of Black Teaching Artist Lab. I had a chance to sit down with her over Zoom to chat. And in the first part of our conversation, we connected over a lot of different topics, including living in Brooklyn, our root identities growing up, and more firmly connecting to our Black identities. We also learn more about the Afrocentric social-emotional learning framework, which is the foundation of Black Teaching Artist Lab's work. Melissa has just lovely energy that is expansive, exploratory, and super contagious. Here is episode 54, act one, Melissa Park, Walk in Truth. Hello, Melissa. Hello, how are you? I'm doing okay today. Today I'm doing okay. Good. (laughs) How about yourself? 
I am, I had a really good sleep today, last night. So I, when you wake up and you have a good sleep, it's, I feel like it's always going to be a good day. Being hydrated as well. <laughs> yeah, today's like silly hot, silly, silly hot. Um, well, welcome to Teaching Artistry Podcast. We here at the Teaching Artistry Podcast, we like to celebrate artist culture and equity. And I'm super excited to have this conversation with you this is like months and months and months in the making. <laughs> yes, it has been. But we're finally here. But we're finally here, you know, and timing is everything. That's all That's all I'm going to say about that. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to learn more about the work that you do, your journey um, in like community engagement, arts education, advocacy. I know you do a lot of advocacy. Ad- advocacy. Uh, <laughs> yep. Uh, okay, so let, let's start with, we just started a little bit, but can you um, help me know, like, when somebody asks, how are you, how are your loved ones doing, that can sometimes feel heavy, and I don't mean it to be, but I also don't want to deny it if it is, but yeah, I do want to know how you're, how you're doing. I'm good, my family's good, I actually recently um moved out of my parents' house. So it's like this weird growing pain for everyone. I'm the youngest. My sister recently bought a house in North Carolina. So that's also new. Um, so it's just, a, it's it's an interesting place for everyone. Like my family's, you know, it's just the four of us. So it's interesting to see um, us all growing in this weird period of time during COVID. So I think we're good, but it's changing. Life is changing for us, but in a a good sense, I think we're all adjusting. Where did your sister move from? We both lived at home. So we live in Brooklyn and then she found the love of her life and moved to North Carolina in Asheville, which is an awesome place to live. And and just bought a house and, you know, settling down, she got a new job, she's working from home. So it's all good stuff. Exciting. Big, big changes though, right? Like growth changes. I never, I literally was one of, I was like the last of my friends to live at home. And now I'm living on my own, no roommates in New York city, in Brooklyn. So it's like, oh my God, like I never thought I would be in this space before. And now I'm here. So it's like kind of disjointed, exciting, but, um, good. Good. Yeah. Good. Sit in that. Sit in that goodness. I am uh I'm going I'm starting to have recollections of um being a very experienced roommate. I was I like could not get out of my parents' house fast enough, in my personal opinion, that I was like ready to go. Um I popped back and forth a few times, but um yeah, I was an experienced roommate for many, many years and then that 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 decision to move into my own apartment was a big, a big step. Big deal. It was a big deal. And it was, it was exciting and new and different. And, and now I'm very used to it, but it's a, it's, it's a thing. It is a thing. And I would have loved to have a roommate, but I think I would have been like the nightmare roommate. I am so particular about certain things. I will label my food in the fridge. Like if anyone touches my stuff, I will, be very angry so i'm doing everyone a favor by living by myself honestly <laughs> like i'm it's it's good for society for me to live in my one bedroom apartment in brooklyn where'd you grow up 
I grew up until I was nine in Clinton Hills, Brooklyn. And then we moved, my, my parents bought a house when I was 10 in Prospect Lefford Gardens in Flatbush. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I lived there for, till I was 27. So I grew up in Brooklyn. Um, I went to lower middle school, high school, college in Brooklyn, in <laughs> Northern Brooklyn, did not leave. Um, so a hundred percent, my parents met in Brooklyn, so it's it's very much like a Brooklyn, typical Caribbean Brooklyn story, is my life. Um, well, I live in PLG. You do? I do. I've lived here in this neighborhood for over ten years. What? Are you serious? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay, like we, I, we need to exchange like cafes. I'm like looking at photos. My mom was showing me photos um, of us when we we're younger, and there's like photos of like um, in the background you see the twin towers, yeah. and I'm like, whoa! Like driving down Washington, you see the skyline. You used to be able to see the towers. Now you see the Freedom yes. Tower, but it's just like it's like wild, like yeah. wild, wild, wild. I'm like. I, this is within our timeline, our, our life, and it's so much things has happened, and it's just, it's weird. I guess that's what happens when you get older. Yeah, change is weird. Things happen. You sort of reminisce. Um, but I just, yeah, I just remember being like, this place is my place. But then I was hanging out with, you know, <laughs> very cool Brooklynite people, and they'd be like, you're like an alien. <laughs> like... Because I was, you know, I was a little like, I don't know, I wasn't as, I don't know, whatever it was. I wasn't, I'm not Caribbean. So that's one thing. And I'm hanging out with a lot of people who um, are of Caribbean descent. And there's just a vibe that like, I don't get. And that's okay. But I, I'm, I, I love it. I love everything about it. I love the food. I love it. I don't know. I haven't had all the foods. I'm not like completely indoctrinated, but I definitely feel like, um, over the years, over the 20 years that I've lived here, or I guess 19 years that I've lived here, um, you know, being surrounded by, you know, older women, all the aunties like that, that, and, and sort of the sass that they, (laughs) so it's like, oh, this feels very close to my, like, it feels akin to the home that I, I knew when I was in the South and my family there who are also, you know, they're deeply American, um, you know, of of uh, descendants of enslaved people, and um, like family is everything. Food is everything. Like gathering is really important, and that's what I. Fe- that's the sense that I felt. I felt. Um, I also had an ex who uh, whose family is Haitian, so I was and I, we were together for a long time. So I was very much, but I still felt like, as much as I f- I feel connected to whatever, there was always a, like a gap, always. Like I didn't speak. I didn't speak Creole. I didn't speak French. I didn't speak. You know. Yeah, I don't, I wonder what that gap is, maybe, you know, I wonder what that feeling is like, because I, I, I feel like that, I felt, I think I felt something similar when I went to Trinidad, like my mom's from Trinidad, um, we're Afro-Trinidadian, but there's also uh, a lot of Indo-Trinidadians there, uh, but when I went there, like, I felt like I was completely different than everyone else you're like obviously you're american when i'm here a lot of folks are like you're obviously not american you look like you're from the caribbean it's like okay like where do i like where's my placement like who where am i it's like you know there's there's definitely a 
I feel like a gap, you know, living in Flatbush, there's a lot of cultural norms that you see um, in my household because I grew up in a Caribbean household. But like, you know, when you go to Flatbush, like, you know, your neighbors are your family and like you treat them as your elders, you know, all of those cultural things. But still, like, I'm still really American. Um, but in the Caribbean, I, you know, it's just different. I, I totally, totally resonate with those sentiments, but in, in a different way. I was having a conversation with another guest who was talking about growing up in Houston and um, being of, of Latinidad and trying to navigate being American, you know, first generation American and really, you know, embracing all of one's culture. And so this conversation is making me think similarly, like we have to find our own way sometimes. And that expectation of you should be like this or you should be like that. It's like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to take all the, all the different pieces of what resonates or it makes meaning for me and move through the world in that way. I think that's a hard thing to do. Um, and I, you know, for me, I'll just talk from the eye that for my experience, like I, I am a New Yorker. I grew up in Long Island, I, but my family is not. Like my parents moved here from, from someplace else and they had to, to, different um, life experiences. They met in Chicago, but my dad is from Alabama. And so there was a lot of cultural differences between the two of them. And then they moved to this, then they moved to Long Island. <laughs> and then they're, you know, whole, totally different. And then they're raising these two kids who you know, are being indoctrinated into the ways of the world of this, this world. And I, and for me, I always felt like I, I loved the, I loved the town that I grew up in. I absolutely, I still have such affection for it, but I, there was always something for me that was like, I don't belong. I don't want to live here. I don't belong here in Long Island in this, like this, this way of thinking, this way of operating doesn't make sense to me at all. And what I mean by that is the suburban life of like pretending everything is fine when everything is a shit show behind doors, closed doors, (laughs) and just like not, not allowing, you know, like the ability to have grace around people who are just dealing with some shit and that's okay. Um, And, you know, there's a whole other like, like bunch of layers around, you know, why the suburbs became the suburbs white flight you know all like we could talk about that if we wanted to but um so why i'm bringing this up is i'm curious i i am curious because i'm about to ask you about black teaching rs lab so like let's get into to that work because i'm curious about its mission i want to know how it started i want to understand what your hopes are for how this entity i don't even know what it is it an organization like what tell us more about it because i feel like yeah. there 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 could be some um uh windows into the, the previous conversation that we were having yeah i think i mean I, I can even start by connecting i guess myself with the what you just said because it resonates with black teaching artist lab i think you know growing up in flatbush you know my parents my dad's jamaican my mom's from trinidad growing up thinking this American dream, and they worked really hard to get where they are, like middle class, upper middle class, and always going to private school my whole life. And then up until, until I was in second grade, second grade to 12th grade, I went to this college prep school in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. 
very white, very, it's looking back, it was very conservative, like the area itself, but it's, it was very nuanced in the way in which they taught. They very, they taught basically social emotional learning before it was social emotional learning. Um, and we had a lot of autonomy over our thoughts, who we are. I was always the only black kid in my space, but I mean, we all had our own issues. <laughs> like it was a weird, funky school. So being black wasn't something I questioned until I was outside of high school and college. So I was kind of like, I had this really awesome brought up and you know, people really understood me and I understood who I was and the music I liked and developed myself, but I really didn't know my own black identity or, or what that meant to everyone else because I was always just Melissa. And I think like, you know, discovering the world doesn't always operate like that and the world operates seeing you as a certain way because of history and media um, affects how we look at ourselves and um, our youth. And I, and I wanted to figure out why and figure out how we can, you know, provide black educators and black students with a similar experience that I had where I rooted myself in my own self-identity rather than my black identity first, which oftentimes are negative. That resonates with me um, as well. Like I rooted myself in who I am and my, and like what resonated for me, which I, I did not feel as close to my black identity because it wasn't around me. It just wasn't. The only place it was, was in my home. And even there, it, there was a lot of nuance to it. And it wasn't until I think the first time was we went to a, uh, uh, um, my dad's family has family reunions and we went to a family reunion and it was like, oh, oh, this is a world. And I, I you know, and I, I was in culture shock. I'm, you know, coming from the North, going down to the South, being surrounded by only black people when I'm never surrounded by black people ever at 13, at 13. Right. And just being like, oh, and so I just observed because I, and everybody's like, you're so quiet. And that's just what I do is I'm like, I'm trying to understand everything. And I want to, I want to know. And then by the time I was like in my twenties, those reunions, I was like, I, I, I love this. And living in Atlanta, honestly, also I think opened up me to my black identity further. And I feel like my whole adult life has been about really connecting to my black identity. And it's still like, if I did my like molecule, I would identify as a woman first and a black woman next, but it's much bigger and closer than, than it had been in the past. No. Yeah. That's literally essentially what black teaching artist lab is, is like having these, these sort of conversations. I don't think I actually had, had that clear of understanding of that experience before. So thank you for giving space to that. That's, uh, really cool to, to hear someone similar experience as I do because it's, you know, when, when thinking about it, it's like, wow, like people who are black, especially, you know, in, in urban areas, like all they know about their black identity is negative or from the media, or even if it's positive, you like be an athlete or be a rapper over sexualized. Like these are the things that aren't always um attainable and it's, it's not you know also the most like quote-unquote desirable if, if depending on who you are um and i and i think that education is such an important 
lens to, you know, look at our black identity. There's so much about our culture um, in general through diaspora, Africa, you know, the South. Like there's so much that we just don't know and there's so much for us to uncover. So I, you know, I really thought about it and, and realized also I'm a creative, I love, thinking also I'm not an artist a lot of people think that I'm an artist I'm not an artist I'm an educator but I'm a creative so thinking about arts education and education as well um how can I combine those two and create an entity of LLC and really help black educators um so I created black teaching artists um um and create the Afrocentric social emotional learning framework, which essentially is a framework that centers the social emotional understanding of self using artistic practices. So I trained black teaching artists in the, that framework um, so that they could go out and teach that to other parts of the diaspora. That's my goal. <laughs> so you're going to Jamaica, Trinidad, Brazil, and learn what it means to be black in all these parts of the world with a tool that you have, um, and I, th I, I, I think that may unlock a lot of these universal truths that we have as as people, you know, and understanding how we are connected. Um, I just find it really wild how, you know, my family's from Jamaica. You know, we have the Aki tree, and Aki came from West Africa. You know, we were enslaved people, but now our national dish is from you know, it is from West Africa. That's that's insane to me. Like, how is that possible? So I'm hoping to to unlock these truths using uh, Black Teaching Artist Lab as that vehicle. Is it just you? It's me going out and like consulting and teaching. But, you know, this idea of research in, um, uh, traveling and cultural exchange is much bigger than Melissa Park. So I could have, could have named it Melissa Park Consulting Company, but you know, Black Teaching Artist Lab, it's, you know, we're a laboratory where we're conversing and, and thinking and, you know, sharing. So technically, yes, it's me, but there's also folks who I collaborate with. There's Teaching Artist Guild, there's TAP, there's Melanie Educators Collective out of Philly, there's teach, a Black Teaching Project. You know, there's a lot of people who I collaborate with and do a lot of work with. Um, so yes and no. <laughs> the reason why I asked that was because I feel like there's a lot, there's so much beautiful activity um, that I see on Instagram, on the, your Instagram account. And um, there is always like this, um, we're doing this with this this group or that group, but then there's also that that what you talked about the social the Afrocentric uh, social emotional framework that I didn't know that's what it was called, but I I have felt that and I feel like there's there's um so much care that's put into into that work. Can you explain maybe or share one of the one of the kinds of projects or you talked about research because I feel like when we talked. I don't remember when that was, but whenever we talked last, um, this is what you were talking about. You were, you had a survey that went out, but then there was also this, um, 
in a um a research study event something in Puerto Rico like there's just so many projects I don't even remember all of them <laughs> yeah yes we the biggest project which is shout out to creative generation um is doing a simple survey on black teaching artists you know it, it really started with me going to my partner organizations, like I was writing my um, business plan and I was like, I don't know how many black teaching artists are in the United States. Let me ask the folks who do this work. So I emailed them I'm like, hey, like do you, who are, where are black teaching artists? What's their number, what statistics? They're like, we don't have the number. I was like, how do you not have those numbers? It makes no sense to me. You're doing DEI work. You're, you're doing black, you know, racial affinity spaces, yet you don't know the people who you're serving are in a demographic. That doesn't make sense to me. We're doing a survey. We're figuring out who these folks are. And initially when I did it, I really didn't expect it to be a year and a half long project, but um, here we are a year and a half later and we are in our final process of finishing the, the survey um and and getting it published in like a real publication which is like bonkers to me it's like literally groundbreaking work and it came from you know my need or or my desire to not be like every other type of non quote-unquote non-profit it's not really non-profit but like an entity that works with teaching artists or with um or organizations or art education because i could I could have just done a cultural exchange program. I could have just done Afrocentric SEL framework and put it wherever. But to really hear from folks who are in the field, this is what I want. This is who I am. These are things that I'm facing on a daily basis. Like that is what I need to hear. Now I need to listen. I need I need to take that time to, you know, understand that. And it really put a lot of things in. Um, perspective, it changed the course of the things that I want to do with Black Teaching Artists Lab in order for me to align with what are the needs for Black Teaching Artists. Um, exciting. Um, I'm lucky that I my degree is in history because I did research before because it was definitely a hard process, but it, it's it's 100% worth it. Um, but that that's like the, the biggest project that I'm doing right now, uh, aside from making connections in Puerto Rico. I want to do a cultural exchange there. Again, it's 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 a learning process what I'm doing right now. I just don't want to go to Puerto Rico and be like, hey, like we're artists and we just want to do a cultural exchange. It's like, you know, it's building those connections and building that mm-hmm. trust and fostering those relationships, I think, you know, are really, really important. Um, and I have the privilege of time, you know, I'm yeah single i live by myself i don't have kids i don't have that much bills to pay my parents help me out you know it's privilege of time so i'm 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 definitely um taking advantage of the fact that you know i i have this time and and the ability to do this work in this moment of my life two things i i I would like to point out or, or have you zoom in on a little bit further uh first i'm going to talk about the time the time thing that you said i'm trying in my in my life (laughs) i'm trying very hard to um re-establish my relationship to time 
and and um understand that you know you can make progress beyond deadlines oh Oh my god, the Virgo in me is crying. I can't. <laughs> listen, I am very like, but listen, I am very, very productive. I can get a whole bunch of stuff done in a very short amount of time. And I'm and I'm fine with that, but I also then beat myself up if I don't get something done. And that's the part that I'm trying to be like, it's okay that, or to sort of try and figure out how to break, you know, something that can will feel like a very large project and one could get overwhelmed into phases so you can feel the progress as opposed to being like we need to be at the end at the end do you see do you understand what i'm saying no i totally i could not agree more <laughs> with you but you said that you know you have time but like time is time you have <laughs> but, uh, meaning like it's uh, it's up to us to to determine for a project like this, like the urgency that we are constantly always under and feeling whatever that, you know, for whatever reason, I'm trying to, you know, break that apart a little bit because I'm, I'm tired of that. I'm tired of that. And I, I want to be able to prioritize what makes sense to have accomplished now. I also think about what can I, what can I do to make sure that somebody else can do their, their piece of the puzzle and that's that's ultimately how I start to prioritize <laughs> because if I don't do my piece they can't do their piece and then this gets stalled right so I don't want to bottleneck but also that might mean that I'm gonna have to pause on something else that I felt a lot of urgency on but I can get done on Monday so so anyway that's just one thing I just wanted to honor the fact that you said I have the time but I also want to say like we have time more time than we think than we normally or and or you know the pressures are giving us or think we're giving being given right so we can break that apart a little bit more yeah breathe and create some space around that I also for me um I, I have to think you know I can't just produce I need that time and I, I try to find that in different ways like you said rest is very very important I find swimming to be a place where like my, my mind can, my mind can get unlocked or going on a meeting where we're walking, then, you know, that, that active piece unlocks something that, you know, could be stuck. Okay. So that's the one thing, but the, the big thing that I really wanted to <laughs> just zoom in on was you, you said that this is a long project. It's been about a year and a half. Can you just break down and that you've had experience through your degree? Can you break down the phases of this project? Because it sounds like this is, like in the in the published nature, like people are going to start utilizing that data. I think when you connect time and like your question to you, because I it it started. I had to take like a mental health break for five months, and I think May was this May was like the first time I'm getting back to doing curriculum design. I'm emailing folks, you know, talking with you. Like I'm like okay, I I can feel ready in May because I there was like this exponential growth during COVID because of Black Teaching Art Islam. Everyone was at home. You know, people wanted something, cha some changes. There's racial and social conflict that was happening. Arts education, there needed to be a change. So there was a need for Black Teaching Art Islam. And I had so much support and so much assistance because I was ready. I, again, had time, I was home. And then I got a job. 
And then, you know, I living on my own and then I just had like a literal meltdown. Um, and it's just like, you know, you're you're right. Like you have to take this time and in these moments and realize that you're you're doing the work. It's just it's taking longer time than you anticipated. And that was a real, real struggle for me because a you're working with another organization, you know, you're new. Um, and their experience so they know better so like but you think you know better like you're you're young and you're young to this you know what's happening in the field i learned that very quick that i don't you have to humble yourself um so that was that was the biggest one of the biggest struggles for me was like you know making there's a timeline and you don't have control over that um but in terms of breaking down the process it really came down to you know, the first thing we did was like looking at what are the demographic needs and what are the demographic questions we wanted to ask these black teaching artists. Um, and that was also really difficult because I'm like, what if I don't ask this question? I don't ask that question. That means we don't have like that's missing out on such a it felt like a big deal to me. But um, that took about like two months and working with creative generation with that. Um, and then dispersing it was, it had it been another two months because you're doing marketing and you're doing, you know, you're reaching out to organizations and then you're emailing and you're following up and you're making sure everything works. Um, and then I think from like November to December, we were analyzing the data. So like writing it up, figuring out what makes sense, making correlations, making themes, you know, and then from now, from January till now, we're really shifting through the data and, and seeing uh, writing the report. So that that's like kind of like the 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 guide, the timeline that we've had. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, it I think it by far was probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do, <laughs> just because of my lack of experience and um, just a lack of control over, you know things it's hard it's hard you know navigating a space when um you feel like you know everything but you don't <laughs> I learned that really really quick it was it was definitely hard I'm super stubborn and and super wanting things done a certain way but um yeah yeah it was it was it was tough any um either takeaways or surprising um analysis or things that you just you weren't expecting i think the correlation between the amount of experience black teaching artists have mm -hmm. and the amount of benefits they don't have was really shocking yeah. you know i was like let's talk about racism like obviously like jeff was like obviously that's like an issue like everyone knows it's an issue um and and hearing their their experiences was was interesting and you know we will we'll share the ones that we kept permission to share with but the correlation between the benefits and and the experience was really shocking it's it's bonkers to me so i wonder um what the result of uncovering that will be yeah i mean it would be helpful actually i think because there's definitely at least in new york city there is a growing conversation around um I, i'm not sure if, what kinds of benefits you're talking about but i'm i'm specifically referring to healthcare benefits yeah. and yes. um yeah. and having you know 
try figuring out, especially when I, I, well, I won't make judgments on like budget sizes, but like there's just the insurance carriers are, are the system is, is really hard to to navigate um, and to, to make change that, that said, there's more that can be done um, and, and being more mindful and more specific um, is really important and something that like I, I remember having these conversations just before um, the Affordable Care Act came out and then when that did count and then it didn't really go very, very far and then um, when that did happen there was some support to help people sign up but then that started to like sort of phase out and now we're just in a very very different need different space different time um and you know while there is a marketplace it's still like what you're talking about like you you just said the experience the the vast amount of experience that um black teaching artists have versus uh when you say benefits i'm wondering also if you're talking about pay scale just health and dental but still like if you're making you know through your conglomerate of of positions and organizations that you may work for or or on your own your income your annual income may not match where the out-of-pocket expenses need to be you know for a particular plan it's um it's hard you know i i think i've heard about you know this issue via tag the teaching artist uh guild and they have like the they do a lot of advocacy for that, um, for teaching artists. So I, look, I, I knew there was an issue where there's, you know, working with certain organizations, you, you know, you don't get paid the best, but seeing that, like seeing actual data, it's just kind of like, whoa, like we could make systemic changes with this information, yeah. which is like also something I didn't realize going into working with creative generation was like, you know, I remember like having a conversation with them. I'm like, what does being published mean? And like telling me all of like, it's going to be on Google Scholar. I'm like, that is what we're doing right now. Like it just blew my mind. And it just, you know, doing this type of work in a non-conventional way. Like this is sort of like, I'm helping my friend with his like dissertation at one, at this point. So it's like doing these unconventional ways of, um, learning and exploring and research that's all what i think art education is um and i think you know exploring that in in education again going back to you know why i do black teaching artist lab is really important is just you know changing the systems in which we are used to seeing which are i guess eurocentric and and figuring how how we could navigate it but there's also this economic part that we still need to figure out um so i think even you know i don't know what the results are going to be with the survey or the research report but i do know as someone who owns a business and wants you know to make revenue like there has to be some sort of economic you know shift and i and i just wonder what that looks like and you know when you say economic shift what do you mean like you know skill sets you know what like how can we provide you know so my goal one of my goals is for you know to to enrich 
Black teaching artists with this skill of using the Afrocentric SEL framework so that when they go into applying for whatever job they want in schools, they have this skill set, this Afrocentric SEL framework, so they can get paid more money because they're specialists in this field. Um, that's just what I want to do, and that's what I want to offer. But I'm also thinking, like, you know, what does cryptocurrency look like in the art world? Like, how can we do provide? You know, I don't, I don't know. I just, I think it would be really interesting to see economics and art education be integrated in some way. Um, I don't know if it's really happening, um, but I think that may be another key of like being more independent and being more sustainable on our own when it comes to education. I was like talking to someone about um, like art galleries or art collectors or they're working with artists to, to do some sort of currency like cryptocurrency and I was intrigued with that as well. So I'll keep you posted about, yeah, keep about that world. Can you talk about this framework? Sure. It's it's taken from obviously the, the social emotional learning framework from um, Castle, and uh, I borrowed a lot from the racial identity framework that was created by someone who was white, and I was like, "That's very interesting." So let me reframe this in a way that makes sense for um, a person who is black. So it, it's like social emotional learning and also culturally responsive learning. It borrows from so many different frameworks, but the difference between social emotional learning, traditional social emotional learning and Afrocentric social emotional learning is that each framework or each competency builds on itself. So there's Afrocentric self-awareness, understanding your social, social awareness of yourself. So, I'm Melissa Park, who loves camping and Dave Matthews and going on hikes. But I'm also Melissa Park, who's six feet tall. And like, if I go into certain areas, people are going to think of me negatively or, or have a certain connotation. How do we process those emotions, right? So that's Afrocentric self-awareness. And then Afrocentric self-care. Like, how do I understand the emotions associated with my Blackness? Like stop and frisk or being overly sexualized like what are those feelings and how can you identify those feelings how can we use art as a way to express those feelings in a positive way and take the dark from the light and afrocentric social awareness understanding that we're connected through the west african diaspora or the people from the africa west the that the diaspora connected through west africa mm. Um, you see it in Trinidad, you see it in Jamaica, you see it in Grenada through dance. Yeah, so you can see the lineage. Um, and then Afrocentric relationship skills. We don't we we live in a multiracial society. How do we navigate these relationships? And the last one is Afrocentric relationship uh, responsible decision making. I know who I am. I know Melissa Park. I also know that my blackness comes with certain connotations, how do I make decisions that are aligned with my identities? So again, it also took a long time to figure out. It, took, it was a long process to learn what SEL is and racial identity and also making it 
again, a framework and not something that's indoctrinating. Like, this is what Black people think, yeah. all Black people think. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really specific about using art because art is a way for us personally to, you know, express ourselves. So using artistic practices is a way for us to be individual. So it's having this framework, having art, I don't know, it, again, has the potential of unlocking this. I'm like going back to this universal truth, like we are connected by something somehow, but I don't know where it is. It's like my life quest, you know, it's, it's, it's wild. I'm, I'm driven by that. I love that. I love that you just said that. It's, I don't know what it is, but I'm driven by it driven by i'm doing research on it i am like wanting to go to grad school yeah i mean that's beautiful that's really beautiful it resonates with people who you know are artists or people who are business owners like it resonates with people like having these kind of conversations across cultures people understand what i'm talking about but it's frustrating because i just want to know what it is like what is it that we're connected by like what is that like I just don't know what it is and it's like am I ever gonna figure it out like am I ever, am I ever gonna know what that is maybe not but it's worth it's worth investigating yeah it, if it sure is. it's been three years so when you were talking about that this thing I don't know what that, that we're connected I agree and I feel sometimes that um one time a medium said that I operate on a higher frequency and I didn't understand what that meant. <laughs> I still don't, but sometimes there's this thing, this thing that I just feel like when I'm low, like I know that it's not forever. It's not going to be forever. So it's okay that you feel this way now. And then when I'm, when I'm, you know, pushed, there's something that pushes me that's not me. And I don't know what that is. If it's my celestial beings, which is like a conglomerate of like my ancestors and other, other energies that are for me. And I think that when you were talking about, there's something that connects us. I, I feel like that's what I just named is part of the, the thing that connects us. Right. If we're, if we allow ourselves to like be moved by it or let it, let it help us. Right. Like sometimes people talk about the universe, the universe, like, you know, put us in this place. Da, da, da. Yes. Sometimes we are the ones who get in our way Yeah. when, you know, there is an energy that is trying to create positive positivity for us or positive things that could happen um, or yeah. support when something negative happens. That, that resonates. I think the closest, like, idea I have of whatever this is is like the concept like everyone a lot of people say like humans are one and we're connected by this oneness and the understanding of oneness and I we see that through like the pan-african diaspora like we see this oneness we see this through our artwork like if you go to Puerto Rico and certain parts like you see the same mass making in West Africa and like it just it's so fascinating and I and I think bringing folks from those different parts of the world who experience this different oneness 
has the potential of creating something spectacular. I don't I don't know. Maybe maybe that's the reason why I'm so fascinated by it. But I, I definitely relate to that wholeheartedly, the experience of of clarity. Something that you just said made me think about like that's why the power of our collective connection terrifies white people. Ooh, <laughs> wow. Whether it's conscious or not, you know, but I think that's, that's part of the reason like our histories are what they are. Yeah. I wonder what it is that's fearful. Like, what is it? Like, what could it possibly be that? Well, I was reading an article recently. I can't, I'm not going to remember where, but I was about like the... Eurocentric uh, way of operating is through violence, right? And it's hard to know. It's hard not to think that others who who might be become in power would do the same. Mm. So so holding on to the power is because you're. I I think. Okay, I'm gonna say. So, I'm gonna make it more micro for a second instead of trying to make it very big. I have noticed this, and this is this is a super generalization. Okay, so it's not like specific people, but I'm bringing it down to like not systems and things, but like the people or group of people. Um, sometimes I think about how catty and and mean white people can be to women could be to each other. Um. And I sometimes I wonder, like, we want we want people to change, but like, if they can't even be nice to each other, wh- what makes us think that anybody? And I'm being really like simplistic here, yeah. but like, if they can't be nice to each other because there's still a, some sort of power dynamics going on, if you think about like Mean Girls or you know something like yeah. that, what makes the, us think that that can change when we start talking about the racial diaspora? I'm not talking about individuals. I'm not talking about, you know, I'm just saying like, but this concept (laughs) of, you know, doing anti-racism work or EDI work, knowing that they're not the same, um, anti-oppression work, like oppression is the way it's like the way that we operate on a daily to each other constantly. (laughs) And I, I have, I have noticed big changes in how people are operating and I appreciate that. And I've, I've been working on it. Um, but it, it, it always seems like it gets to a point and then we can't get past a, a point. And I don't know how to get past that point, but this, this idea that I'm, I'm bringing up here, I think is maybe the reason why we can't get past the point is because they actually have like, there has to be a looking in, that they can't do. Yeah, I talked about living in in the suburbs, right? Yeah. And, you know, it doesn't get more, <laughs> you know, mean girl than in the suburbs. <laughs> um, and 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 that can look a lot of different ways, not just in a, like a high school situation, but like living like you've got a, a block of people and everybody's competing against each other to have the nicest lawn, to have the nicest this. Uh, did you hear about so-and-so? There's gossip that's happening, right? And and yet I'm going to smile to your face <laughs> and pretend like everything's fine. Meanwhile, I'm just talking shit behind your back. Always, yeah. always, always. And I, and like, 
so for me, you know, whether it was, uh, you know, somebody who was white identifying or, or somebody who's of color, you know, I was always looking to see like, how do you treat other people? Not just me, but how do you treat other people? You will treat me that way too. If you're like conniving or, or moving, you know, puzzle pieces or stabbing people in the backs, like I can't, and it, even if you've never done it to me, I will not be your friend. I cannot be around that kind of energy. Yeah, no, I, I full heartedly agree. And I think, you know, going back to, you know, a lot of folks, and I'm sure every, a lot of, I mean, it makes sense of doing Black Teaching RSM, that I do DEI work and like anti-racism work. And I just like that, like anti-oppression, like that is such like left field for me. And I totally don't, I just don't do it. Like I'm just not equipped with it. And I say that because like a lot of my spaces aren't with white people. And I feel like if I am in a space with white people and talking about race, you're you're not gonna win like you're not gonna argue with me about race and you're not the race that you're you know what i mean like that 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 that's a shutdown conversation for me right there but you know it like going back to your point about like you know the fearfulness and being a collective and i don't i i i have this i guess because my parents are entrepreneurs and like i am now it's like I want autonomy over the work that I do. I want autonomy over the things I do. I don't want to be feeling like I have to be on the helms of these bigger corporations or the board of education. The board of education should be working and collaborating with me, you know? (laughs) And and I think that's an important stance to have, to own your own things, to be able to do it because that's where power comes from, but also knowing what type of character you are um you know and and obviously there's a lot of growth in my part you know i'm a i am a stubborn person i like control but i'm also not an asshole like i'm not a bad person at at my core it's not you know you're not a bad person and and i think that's really important to have good character when you're when you're doing this type of work because People know, people talk, like people know who you are. And then I think it's really important just to, to be truly authentic um, and, and walk in truth, you know, because I think that that also comes with change as well. Thank you for listening to episode 54, act one of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body, Melissa Park, Walk in Truth. Join us next time for act two. This podcast is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the director of creative content. Jono Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org and head to the pod shop at the top of the page for merch. Twitter us at TA underscore artistry. The gram at teaching artistry with CJB. And now on YouTube, check out the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body channel and watch We Can't Go Back. Like our page on Facebook. Listen to us on SoundCloud and Spotify. Subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now.